again, I am uh, delighted to be with uh, you uh, this morning. My family and I have uh, enjoyed our, our brief time together, and we will continue to do so, I'm, I'm b- believing. Uh, my wife um, is always a constant encouragement uh, for me, and so I thank God for her and my children um, attending with me uh, here in Huntsville. Uh, they left me briefly on last night during my message. I think it was my cue that my time was up. Um, they pr- they provide subtle subliminal messages such as those. Um, I kid. I know. I, I think. I think they just had some things they had to tend to. But I'm grateful for them, and I'm grateful for you all. I'm grateful for uh, Pastor Grissom who has um, lent this opportunity to me, which I do not take lightly because it is indeed a very heavy topic, and which we'll dive into for the next uh, next couple of hours here between now and this. <laughs> We'll dive into it a few minutes now, and then we'll dive into it later as well. Amen. Um, I need your courage this morning. I need your courage. Because we are living in a deeply divided time, and we are living in an increasingly deadly divided time. And so I need your courage. This week alone in Louisville, Kentucky, we had a man walk into a Kroger's, put a gun to the back of the, back of the head of a 69-year-old man by the name of Maurice Stollard who was in the store with his grandson, and shoot him. And then kept shooting him as he laid on the floor multiple times. Same man reholstered his gun, walked out into the parking lot of this Kroger's in Louisville, Kentucky, and shot a 67-year-old woman by the name of Vicki Lee Jones. Both of those victims were black. The shooter casually walked about the parking lot, and he was encountered by a man by the name of Ed Harrell, a witness who was initially waiting on his wife in the Kroger's to come out and begin to see the chaos, and so he began ducking, grabbing a hold to his revolver. He saw the gunman walk nonchalantly um, by him in the parking lot with the gun to his side. He said, he called out, Ed said he called out, not knowing really what was going on, nor not realizing that it was in fact the gunman. And so he called out to ask what was going on inside, and the gunman replied, Don't shoot me, I won't shoot you. Whites don't shoot whites. This man who wreaked wreaked havoc on this Kentucky Kroger's had minutes before entered a predominantly black church in Jefferson Town, Kentucky, the first local First Baptist Church in Jefferson Town, Kentucky, which happened to be closed at the time that he attempted to enter and introduce God knows what other chaos Yesterday in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, a man with a questionable history walked into a Jewish synagogue during a baby naming ceremony, opened fire on an unsuspecting crowd of Jewish congregants, killing 11, wounding others. Police arrested the man on yesterday. One officer quoted him as saying, all these Jews need to die. This is in the same week that we saw a man detained for allegedly sending 13 pipe bombs to politicians and Popular activists, our country is deeply divided. Our country is deadly divided. But what may even cause me more grief is that our church is deeply divided. The unfortunate reality is that our church is not only deeply divided, but it's deeply divided along the same lines as our country, which is odd. We have bought into the narrative as a church that the other is the face of evil, the same narrative that our country has adopted. The Republicans must be stopped. The Democrats must be stopped. The 
The foreigners must be stopped. White people must be stopped. Black people, Asian people, Hispanic people. I personally watch with horror flipping through my news channels and social media feeds during the Kavanaugh confirmation or Kavanaugh congressional hearings recently as I listened to Christians basically told the same lines that our country was towing. They told lines on what facts to accept and reject solely based on the news channels they consumed and the politics they embraced. Many who were MSNBC channel watching and liberal leaning Democrat voting said without a doubt that Kavanaugh was guilty and the world was ignoring the trauma of a victimized woman forcing her to relive her experiences. And yet many who were Fox News watching, conservative leaning and Republican voting said without a doubt that Kavanaugh was innocent and the world was destroying an innocent man's life. What I didn't see a whole lot of and what I did not observe and hear a whole lot of was Christians who were able to just simply say, I'm not sure. Don't have any other facts, really. Got a lot of partisan information, but I'm not sure we got many facts. This is just one of the examples of many where we have not, where we, where we have to not only ask ourselves what's happening in our country, but we have to ask ourselves what is happening with us. What is happening with us? What is happening with the church? The text before us today is a text that can help us make sense of how such divisions start and then how to address these divisions. This is a text that is heavy on works-based salvation and how that works-based salvation can divide the church. But what we must understand about works-based salvation is that it often manifests itself in other ways beyond circumcision and dietary laws. It can be deeply connected and attached to culture, ethnicity, politics, race. Saying works-based salvation that tells a man he must be circumcised in order to be saved is the works-based salvation that tells a man or a woman that she must vote Democrat or Republican in order to be Christian. Are you tracking with me this morning? And so I need your courage. I need you to pray my courage up here, man. I need your courage. In order to understand this text, Paul's, Paul's sharp opposition of Peter, we need to not only look at the verses following verse 11, but we need to look at the verses preceding verse 11. See, Peter was amongst the other apostles in the sequence of events that Paul describes in Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Now, theologians debate chapters 2, verses 1 through 10 as to whether this was the Jerusalem Council meeting described in Acts 15 or another separate, more intimate meeting just between the major major players amongst amongst the Jerusalem council but but nevertheless that does not matter this morning that's not necessary for our discussion what does matter is that verses 1 through 10 describe a moment that brought together many of the leaders from both sides of the Christian movement those called to the Jews and those called to the Gentiles the non-Jews to determine what was happening amongst the Jews and to make a determination as to whether what was happening was actually all said so much in verse 2 of chapter 2 in our reading. It says, Then after the 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. And I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately, because before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. So, however, instead, Paul... 
instead of Paul being given grief, rather, because of the unique work that was going on in the midst of the Gentiles, a work that, by the way, did not include conformity to the ceremonial dietary laws of Jewish culture and and the traditions of Jewish culture. Instead of him receiving grief, he was given praise and the work was celebrated. He talks about that work being celebrated in verses six through ten. He said, and from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential, they added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and Peter, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Paul's point in sharing all of that with us is to point out that everyone listened and responded with their agreement towards what was being done amongst the Gentiles. They realized that God was doing something unique, different, and bringing salvation outside of the Judaic camp. They gave us the right hand of fellowship signifies their support for what God was doing outside of the Judaic camp. Peter was most likely leading the pack with the strongest of endorsements in this moment. Why do you say, why, why do you, or why rather you ask, do I believe that Peter was leading the pack with such strong endorsements for what Paul and Barnabas were doing back in Antioch? Well, because Peter had experienced the manifestation of God's grace firsthand among the Gentiles. For the Bible readers in the room, I reference Acts chapter 10. For the non-Bible readers in the room, let's take a cliff note summary of Acts chapter 10. Peter, a Jewish man who had followed Jesus during his earthly ministry and became one of his most beloved disciples and eventual apostles, was doing ministry in a town when God shared a vision with him. It was a vision to help him rid or to rid him of his prejudice towards non-Jewish folks who God was calling out of darkness into his marvelous light. So before Peter goes to meet a man who God had also given a vision saying salvation is coming to your home and I'm sending a man to preach the gospel to you. Before that happens, God gives Peter a vision. And in that vision, there's a sheet that is coming down from heaven and all manner of food is on this sheet or all manner of animals is on that sheet. Four legged animals, reptiles and birds of the air. And and Peter is seeing this food come down or seeing these animals come down and he hears two instructions from God. Kill and eat. Now, Peter, a morally upright, devout, and ceremonially sound Jewish man at this point in the vision immediately draws back from the command from God. He declares, wait, no, Lord, no, not going to kill and eat. I've never eaten any, I've never eaten, eaten anything impure and ritually unclean. Don't you just love when we tell God what we ain't going to do, right? No, I'm not going to eat that. It's not clean. And so instead of God immediately setting Peter on fire and bringing an abrupt end to this vision, something like we would do, right, which is, which, which is probably what I would do, but he doesn't do that. Instead, he works with Peter 
over three times, kill and eat, kill and eat. And they go back and forth. Finally, God says, what God has made clean, do not call impure. As a matter of fact, excuse me, he says that before immediately, and then they begin to wrestle three three times, back and forth, kill and eat. I'm not going to eat that. It's not clean. What God has made clean, do not call impure. So Peter wakes up from this vision and he realizes, wait a second, God is doing something. And immediately as he wakes up, he is summoned by the man who God had also given a vision. A centurion from the Italian regiment, a Gentile. An unclean man in Peter's mind. So God sends Peter to this man. Peter preaches the gospel to the entire household. The Holy Spirit falls on the entire household. And then Peter declares, can anyone withhold water from, uh, for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus. I say all of that to say that Peter was a firsthand witness to the grace of God at work in the Gentile believers. Acts chapter 10, which is probably what in Acts chapter 10, which is why he is probably a wholehearted believer and endorser of Paul's ministry to the Gentiles in Galatians chapter 2. So the question is, what happens between Galatians chapter 2, verse 9, and Galatians chapter 2, verse 12? Because now it seems that Peter has reneged his approval of Paul and the work that they're doing amongst the Gentiles. Now, before we answer that, notice that in verses chapter 12, uh, in chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, Peter's reneging seems to impact others as well that are gathered around him. It says the rest of the Jews, verse 13, acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Barnabas was considered an encourager. As a matter of fact, his nickname is, or the nickname itself represents son of encouragement. He had a very special relationship with these particular Gentile saints. In fact, it was Antioch where the Christian explosion amongst the Gentiles first took place. And it was Barnabas that the church initially took to Antioch when they began to hear about what God was doing there. And the scripture says of Barnabas' arrival in Acts chapter 11, when he came to Antioch and he saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. And so Barnabas, the same man who first showed up in this city and saw what God was doing amongst these people and was glad about it and encouraged them in it, now is at the table with these same folks. And because the circumcision party has arrived, he is now leaving the table along with Peter. And you have to understand that at the table, the table represents acceptance. The table represents intimacy. The table represents fellowship. So he is removing acceptance, intimacy, and fellowship from his fellow brothers because of this party that is now here. And again, the question is why? I believe Paul has the answer. Because Paul in this text in chapter 2, besides showing us that he was accepted by the apostles, he also gives us a little indicator as to why he is not, a, as to why he is among the very few Jews who refused to turn their back on these believers. Verse 2, 
verse 6 and verse 9. Paul makes this sort of passing statement if we're not watching. But it bears our attention. He says this three times. Those who seemed to be influential. Those who seemed to be pillars. But in verse 6, he elaborates on why he continues to say seem. Those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Doesn't make any difference what they are. God God sees all of us as equal. They seem to be influential because they carried reputation among men, but with God, they were seen as no greater than any of his other servants. Their affiliation, their culture, their background, their popularity, their ethnicity, their reputation was not valued above the grace that Paul had witnessed from God in bringing Gentile believers to faith in Jesus Christ. All of that in the moment of division and separation from the dinner table may have been more important to Peter and may have been more important to Barnabas in the moment, but it was not more important to Paul. See, verse 6 means way more to all of this text than most people would even give it credit for. The confrontation that Paul has with Peter in verses 11 on does not happen. Without verse 6. Folks, listen to me clearly. Fear of man can erect just as many walls of division as hatred of man can. We cannot perform the work of ethnic, cultural, racial reconciliation when we are ensnared by the fear of man. See, we often make the mistake of believing the only way we show elitist attitudes towards others is through the emotion of hate. But the emotion of fear is just as potent in its ability to create separation in the body of Christ and beyond. In fact, Peter's sin against his brothers in Antioch here was very similar to his betrayal of Jesus in Jerusalem. Remember, Peter's betrayal of Jesus was not fueled by hatred for Jesus. It was fueled by fear of Jesus' accusers. Again, Peter is found here in betrayal in Galatians chapter 2. Betrayal of his Gentile brothers and sisters at Antioch. To a lesser degree, to be sure, but nevertheless, the motivations are very much the same. Hatred isn't motivating Peter and driving Peter away from the table. Self-preservation is. And that kind of fear is contagious, which is how such a strong saint like Barnabas could be led astray. And those flames are even more dangerous when they are stoked. And folks, they are being stoked in today's day. We are no different if we get enough of our cultural, national, ethnic, or racial kin on a certain bandwagon. It can also drive us to flee from one another or drive us into silence. It's why some of us can be so bold to speak in one setting and so silent to speak in another. Me as a black man who is very much in tune with Missionary Baptist churches who have Democratic voters may be apt to speak clearly and loudly about police violence and yet say nothing 
whatsoever regarding President Obama's position on abortion or gay marriage. Because while the black brothers and sisters in the room may be certainly on board with that position, they don't want you to say anything bad about President Obama. And so that leaves me in a conundrum, doesn't it? Or maybe you and your company of white evangelical conservatives can be very bold in speaking about abortion or gay marriage, but can clam up just at even acknowledging that some of the things that are happening on the border gives you pause, or some of the things happening in police and community engagement gives you pause. You don't want to be called anti-cop. See, none of us believe that a call for accountability against priests who are molesting children or pastors who are abusing wives is anti-priest or anti-preacher or anti-pastor. It's just simply calling accountability to the ones that are questionable, right? But somehow or another, in our partisan language, in our partisan discussions, we create all in or all out. And so if there is someone who, wait a second, supposed to be beating that guy that bad. What are you, anti-police? No, I'm just talking about that guy. That policeman right there. I'm not talking about any other policeman. Are you tracking with me? What ends up happening is because we are living in such a divided culture, we grow silent on the things that our camp does not want us to speak on. And we speak loudly on the things that our camp allows us to speak on, and then we call it courage. Are you tracking with me? Paul's appeal in Galatians 2 carries the type of moral courage that's needed. He was neither fearful of what his naysayers or opponents thought of him, but listen to me, he was not fearful of what his peers thought of him. Dr. King in 1963, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in 1963 of April 16th spoke about this. He said, first, I must confess, he wrote this letter from a jail. He said, first, I must confess that over the past few years, I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klaner, but the white, white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I cannot agree with you in the methods of your direct action. Shallow understanding, he continues, from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. King's letter was written from the hands of a man who had been told to keep silent amongst by his peers. Clergymen in the city said, this is just too much trouble you're stirring up by continually bring, by continuing to bring up these issues. It wasn't his enemies, it was his peers who was telling him to be silent. And his peers wasn't telling him to be silent out of wisdom. His peers was telling him to be silent out of self-preservation. You're stirring our pots too much. Be quiet. 
See, the Jim Crow South was not perpetuated simply by white folks who hated black folks. Instead, it was perpetuated also by white Christians who were too scared of their white counterparts to stand in solidarity with their black family of God. Nazi Germany was not perpetuated simply by Nazis who hated Jewish people. It was perpetuated also, in addition, and you can read the history books for the facts, by Christian or German Christians who simply were too scared to speak up for those that were being incinerated in concentration camps. See, a lot of those people in both settings had no problem with black men or women or Jewish men or women. A lot of those people saw them as equal in the eyes of God. A lot of those people, as a matter of fact, saw the treatment that they endured as wrong. They simply refused to face the adversity that would be associated with them saying so. Brothers and sisters, I'm asking for your courage. What will you say when someone says that outlandish comment in your midst? That super racist, bigoted stereotype that you know is not acceptable in the eyes of God. What will you say in that moment? Will you fold in the midst of your peers when those that don't look like you or think like you are demeaned or diminished? Will you betray your family of God in the presence of your peers and act like their differences in worship are beneath your differences? See, in order for us to realize the unity that has been already secured in the gospel, the truths that we've been given through the gospel will have to become more precious to us than the reputations we're seeking to protect amongst our culture and our nationalism and our ethnicity and our race. The truth of the gospel must be more important. than the opinions of our peers. He says in verse 14 of chapter 2, when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, who is Peter, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Do you hear Paul's language? Before them all, right? Boldness and courage stepping up to the plate to announce the truth concerning the gospel. Why before them all? Sure, there was important people amongst that circumcision party. But what did Paul say in verse 6? Doesn't make any difference to me. God shows no partiality. These people are just people. I fear him. And so I speak. He combats the fear on display with an honest assessment of the condition of all people in light of the gospel. He brings to light Peter's missteps by giving an honest look to the people whom Peter holds in such high regard. His Jewish brothers and sisters. Now it's easy for Paul to do because these are his people as well. Like we said last night, if ethnocentrism has any place to exist, it does not exist amongst black folk, white folk, 
Asian folk, Hispanic folk, it exists among the people of Israel. Because Israel can lay claim to being the blood people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They can lay claim to being the first recipients of the law of God. They can lay claim to having all of the oracles, all of the instructions, and all of the practices of his ways. They can lay claim to being part of the lineage of the king, David, the great king, and all the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, most notably Jesus Come on, man. Who can say that they came from Jesus' line? If there's anyone that can lay claim to a superior culture, it's them. That's why Paul says in verse 15, we ourselves are Jews by birth, not Gentile sinners. This statement is clear. We're not from a pagan culture. We aren't from a heathen culture we aren't from a godless culture we are from a culture that knew of the true god and worshiped the true god if there was ever an elite culture in our history it would be theirs and yet paul says in verse 16 yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law but through faith in jesus christ So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works because by the works of the law of no one will be justified. In essence, he is saying these people whose voices you fear so much that you would break fellowship with your brothers and sisters for are really no better nor any worse than your Gentile brothers and sisters. The words that you are holding in such high regard that you fear concerning them that leaves you to draw, that drives you away from the table brings them no closer to Jesus than the Gentiles are to Jesus. We all are in need of his grace. We all are in need of a righteousness that exists outside of the law that is in him. We are both here through Christ is what Paul is saying, not through our circumcision, not through our cultural cleanliness, but through Christ. None of us are elite. Christ is. Stop it with the Twitter battles about Republicanism and Democrats and conservatives and and stop it. None of us are elite. Jesus is. Paul is saying, have you discovered the proper diet of the Old Testament possibly? Well, yes, I have, Paul. He said, that does not make you righteous. Jesus does. Do you feel that you have the proper style of music in your worship? Well, actually, Paul, that does not make you righteous. Jesus does. Do you feel that you have the appropriate style of dress on Sunday? Well, actually, Paul, yes, we believe that we should relax a little more. That does not make you righteous. Jesus does. Do you feel your speech is better or more refined than another culture? It doesn't make you righteous. Jesus does. Does your political platform give shout outs to the few vulnerable, to a few vulnerable groups while alienating others? Which by the way, if you're asking the question, who's he talking to? I'm talking about both of them. That does not make you righteous. Jesus does. How do you overcome the walls that stop us from establishing true unity 
in our diversity. You overcome them by first acknowledging that none of us are elite. The only elite among us is Jesus. Now, don't just simply say it, but rehearse that in your heart. As you're flipping through and you're watching your evening Sean Hannity or your evening Don Lemon, rehearse that in your heart that this does not make me elite. Jesus does. Every time you want to snarl up because you think somebody's song is too simple on Sunday morning, Every time you want to scoff at a group because you think their song is too complex. Every time you want to roll your eyes because somebody is playing the drums too loud or somebody's playing the piano too soft. Remember that it's only Jesus that makes us elite. He's the only elite among us. As we mentioned last night, at the end of the day, there are truly only two families that exist in the universe, that exist on earth. Those who are declared righteous and those who are not. And those that are declared righteous, those that are declared righteous are only declared righteous through Jesus, removing even their ability to boast. From the very beginning, the language in this text is very interesting. Even the very ideal of a group that Peter fears so much being called the circumcision party by Paul. You see, according to Acts chapter 11, it was Antioch where the saints of God were first called Christian, right? And Christian takes the suffix T-I-A-N, adds it to the root word. The T-I-A-N, what does it mean? The party of. The party of Christ. So Peter broke fellowship with those who were representing first the party of Christ because of fear of what those who were representing the party of circumcision would think of him. Peter is stepping away from the gospel light that he himself knew to be true. He witnessed this. He had visions about it. He saw it. He touched it. And yet, yet, out of fear, He's stepping away from it. He's stepping away from a people who, like him, have been reconciled and brought near to God, not based on their merit, but based on the finished work of Jesus Christ. And instead, he returns to a law not out of hatred for his new brothers, not, out, not, not even out of love for the old ways, but out of fear of those who identified themselves more with circumcision than they did with Jesus And it's for this reason that Paul gives us verse 17, and it says, But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. Paul's point is that after being snapped out of darkness and the rat race of trying to find identity in what you do, the traditions you keep, the works you perform, the ethnicity you were born into, you can't allow anything to bring you back to that life. Not even fear of the Christians who remain attached to that life. Do you understand? Because some of us, it's just going to be hard to pull us out of it, right? Some of us are more Democrats for life than we are Christian for life. Some of us are far more Republican for life than we are Jesus for life. Some of us are far more black for life. Then we are saint for life. 
It's going to be hard to pull some of us out of that, but you cannot allow fear of that group to draw you back in. Paul can stand in solidarity with his Gentile brothers in Antioch at the cost of losing the respect of his circumcision party brothers because the gospel of Jesus Christ really has taken preeminence in his life. Hebrew, tribe of Benjamin, Pharisee, none of that matters any longer to Paul. What matters to Paul is Christ Jesus. He says it, in fact, when he writes to the church at Philippi, when he says that everything that was a gain to me, I have considered lost because of Christ. Pharisee, Benjamin, Hebrew, None of those things take precedence over Jesus. It's how he closes us in chapter 2. He says in verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. Listen to that. I have died with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. If righteousness was gained through my performance, Christ died without purpose. If righteousness is gained through me being a Republican or Democrat, then Christ died for no purpose. If if righteousness is gained through my blackness or my whiteness, then Christ died for no purpose. To walk in step with the gospel is to so identify with the work of Jesus and the work that Jesus has performed on your behalf that your identity in him stands above any other identity that you may have received value from before coming to him. Black, white, conservative, liberal, Democrat, Republican, SBC, United Methodist, Presbyterian Church of USA. I can be all of those things, sure. You can identify with those things to a degree, sure, but none of them takes precedence over your primary identity. What ultimately defines me It's Jesus Christ. These things can describe me, but there is only one who can define me. Jesus Christ. And where I refuse to walk in that, when I refuse to walk in that, it's in those moments and in those places where I will refuse to be obedient, to stand for what my Savior desires for me to stand for. It'll be in those moments that I'll walk away from the dinner table of my brothers because that which I value more is being threatened. Do you understand? I'll walk away because my Democratic brothers don't want me to say that. I'll walk away because my Republican brothers don't want me to say that. I'll walk away because I don't, because my black brothers don't want me to say that. I'll walk away because my white brothers don't want me to say that, even if saying that really is a demonstration of my love for Christ and the brothers that he has engrafted into the family of God alongside me with. Are you understanding that? 
Unity can only, can only be forged by a people who have died to their identities that, they, that once chiefly defined them. The identities that they found righteousness in, the ones that they found validation in. I ask you as I go to my seat, how can we step into a world that is so desperately trying to separate us along racial, partisan, political, cultural, and ethnic lines? We can do so by realizing, like Paul, that we have died to that world. Our life is now hidden and found in Jesus. We can speak truth when it is required because we have died to that world and now live in Jesus. We can walk without fear of rejection from our cultural parties because we have died and now have been raised in the new party, the party of Jesus. We can keep our fellowship and not walk away from the table because our fellowship was paid for by the blood of Christ. Brothers and sisters, preserve this. And you will preserve unity. Preserve this and you will preserve unity. Let's pray.